This month on Security Management Highlights. 72% of adults who responded to the survey favor the practice. Do schools and surveillance cameras mix? News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo has the scoop on a recent study. A proposal was made to modernize the EU Data Protection Directive through the creation of an EU General Data Protection Regulation. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates explains new data security regulations in the European Union and what affected companies can do to ensure they're compliant. Then, Brazil is pulling security personnel from all over the country to keep the streets safe during the event. The 2016 Olympics face serious threats from crime and the possibility of striking security officers. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa explains those and other security challenges surrounding the Summer Games. Plus, Brian Johnson, professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Grand Valley State University, tells us about the study he co-authored exploring recent cases of trade secret theft and explains how to prevent future crime. That's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. A recent study reveals that schools across the United States are increasingly in favor of cameras in educational environments. But are there drawbacks to the growing presence of these surveillance tools? News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo joins us to talk more about this subject. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Can you share with us some of the key findings from this report about school surveillance? Sure. There was real strong support among the people who responded for putting cameras in schools for surveillance purposes. For instance, 72% of adults who responded to the survey favor the practice, and that's up 7% from a year ago when 65% said they were in favor. So it's a big majority and it keeps growing. And the reasons why people support this, the top reason what was cited was to identify criminals and facts after events take place. That was cited by 64% of respondents. Second most popular reason was to provide real-time insights during emergencies. That was cited by 59%. And then 57% cited deterring crimes as the most important reason for cameras in schools. Yes, so obviously people must feel that there's a positive benefit to having these cameras around. And you talked to Kenneth Trump, president of National School Safety and Security Services, who adds that there are some complicating factors regarding the use of these cameras in education. So what did he tell you? Mr. Trump basically said while cameras can be a valuable tool, as you say, there are complicating factors. One is that a lot of schools have budget issues. And so what can happen is for security purposes, school administrators administrators can decide we need cameras or we need more cameras. So they make an increased allocation in their budget to buy new cameras. But that's a one-time allocation. Come 18 months down the road, two years, three years down the road, cameras maybe need to be refurbished, need to be repaired. Maybe some of them have just flat out broke and there's no money in the budget to replace them. So what he sees in some districts is districts who invested in cameras, but the cameras aren't really working well anymore. And it's a bad issue because people who don't follow school policy closely, and, and, and most adults probably don't, think, okay, yeah, they the school's good. They bought cameras a few years ago, not realizing that they're really not working the way they should. 
Yes, and Trump also says schools must invest in the human side of safety and security. So obviously you can't just put all of your eggs in that technology basket. Can you expound? Yes, he's certainly a big proponent of having a strong staff that's really well-trained and is aware and maybe has been trained in and, and has done exercises in security matters. So the way he puts it is your staff's your front lines, not only your teachers, but your cafeteria workers, your custodians, your administrative office staff, all these people are dealing with students every day. They sometimes are the last person to see a student or the first person to see a student. They're also, in the case of, say, an administrative staff, they may be manning the phones when a bomb threat comes in. So he's a big proponent for well-trained staff. That human side of security can never be replaced by cameras, even though cameras can be a valuable tool. One of the problems here is that for some school districts who are strapped for cash, it's cheaper to buy a few cameras than to enroll all their staff in training and exercise seminars. So it can be a money issue where staff gets the short end of the stick just because the school doesn't have enough funding. Now, more than half of survey respondents said they believe visible security cameras can help reduce bullying in school. Is that enough to simply point a camera to deter those potentially violent or bullying students? Or can schools do more to discourage this type of behavior beyond the technology? Yes. In the survey, in fact, a majority of the respondents, 56%, said they thought that visible security cameras could reduce bullying at schools. Mr. Trump argues that schools can definitely do more. And here is a perfect example of the human side of security. Cameras have a role. Certainly, you know, if a bully assaults another student and the camera picks it up, that's a good thing for a camera to be able to do. But cameras don't recognize human dynamics that staff does. What students say to each other, way they act toward each other, a camera can't really interpret that. And staff can. And so an attentive staff is learning a lot about the student body, about individual students, and can pick up dynamics that can turn into bullying or can identify bullying dynamics when they're happening and intervene. So staff is definitely crucial when it comes to bullying behavior. Was there anything else in your interview with Trump or in your story that you feel is worth elaborating on for our readers? Mr. Trump brought up an interesting point. He was saying how school safety is obviously a big issue now. It's a big government issue. And so there's debate whether, say, the Department of Homeland Security should take a more active role. One possibility would be setting mandates that schools have to follow in terms of you have to do this, maybe have a certain amount of equipment or whatever to be considered a safe school. And this can also happen on the state level level two. And so it becomes a big issue in the state legislatures. And so in some states, what's happening is vendors are lobbying in the state house to have departments of homeland security, whether it be on a federal or state level, to have more say in these policies, which could lead to mandates, which could then lead to the vendors selling more products. And this is obviously a completely legal and it's not an unethical ethical practice. It's transparent. They're lobbying in public and they have every right to do that on behalf of their industry. But what Mr. Trump is saying is it's important to realize the factors that are driving policy. And that so when policymakers originally tried to suggest these changes to have 
Homeland Security departments have more control. It obviously was from a safety point of view. Now you have more commerce getting into the debate, which can drive policies if lawmakers are lobbied successfully and make those changes. So it's an interesting and kind of complicated issue, and it's important to realize who all the stakeholders are and how policies are changing and affected by that. Well, thanks again, Mark, for stopping by and talking about a very pertinent subject in the security field, which is school security. Thanks, Holly. On April 14, 2016, the European Parliament passed the General Data Protection Regulation, which includes new and enhanced privacy rights for how the data of EU citizens is handled. As cybersecurity editor Megan Gates explains, affected companies will have to pay close attention to ensure they're following the new rules. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Can you explain for us, in lay people's terms, the origins of the data protection regulations in Europe that you covered in your column? Well, I will certainly try my best. So once upon a time, in 1995, the EU Data Protection Directive was approved, and this allows EU citizens' personal data to be transferred out of the EU to another country, say like the United States, but only if that country ensures certain protections. It also required EU member states to designate one or more public authorities to monitor the application of the directive within their territory to ensure data protection. And so this resulted in a sort of patchwork system with different territories, member states, implementing the directive in different ways. It's created a lot of inconsistencies and legal uncertainty, along with high administrative costs for companies who were trying to make sure that they were compliant with each member state's interpretation of the directive. So it was definitely not a perfect solution. Wow, what a mouthful that is, even in, in lay people's terms. Thank you for explaining that. Basically, that brings us to now. And in your column, you say in 2012, there was a proposal. Why are we talking about that in the summer of 2016? So yeah, fast forward to 2012, and the EU is focused on creating a single digital market. The goal is to tear down online regulatory walls and move the 28 national markets of the EU into a single digital one to provide better online access to digital goods and services and a space where technology and support infrastructure is developed and the market drives growth. You probably have heard a lot of talk about this due to the Brexit decision of the United Kingdom leaving the EU and what impact that's going to have on its involvement in the single digital market. So part of this push towards the single digital market was a proposal was made to modernize the EU Data Protection Directive in 2012 through the creation of an EU General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR for short. The GDPR would lay out in legislation as opposed to court cases the rights EU citizens had in regards to their personal data and how data controllers and processors would respect those rights. Over four years, the EU negotiated and ultimately earlier this spring passed the GDPR that guarantees EU citizens a right to be forgotten, easier access to their personal data, and data portability. And it also creates a bunch of requirements for companies, such as they have to alert EU citizens and certain regulatory bodies within the EU of data breaches within a certain time frame. They have to implement data protection by design and default. And the EU is also enacting stronger enforcement of all of these requirements to really hopefully move towards where everyone is compliant with them. One of the biggest things, though, that the GDPR is changing is that the personal data definition is much broader now. It now means any information related to an identifiable person that can be used to identify him or her, like names, ID numbers, 
identifiers, location data, online identifiers, or one or more factors specific to the physical, physiological, genetic, mental, economic, cultural, or social identity of an individual. So the personal data definition is much, much bigger. And I spoke to Marcus Evans. He's the data protection partner at Norton Rose Fulbright LLP, who leads the firm's European practice. And he said that the definition of personal information makes it even harder to argue that an identifier which is linked to a machine is not personal data. He said, quote, it's now covering the same grounds that it's come to cover today in Europe, but just in a much clearer way so there's no wiggle room. You write that there are some potentially problematic things with the new regulations companies could run into. So what do they have to do to ensure they're compliant with the new regulations? Well, first off, reading through the GDPR might be a good decision if they haven't already. But then companies also are really going to have to map out their data. So they're going to have to know what kind of data they have, where they have it, and how it's protected, and how they're collecting it, and if they're asking um, EU citizens for their consent to collect that data. And they're also going to have to practice deleting data should an EU citizen rescind their consent for the company to have their data. I spoke to Anne LaFrance. She's a partner at Squire Patent Boggs and co-leader of the firm's data privacy and cybersecurity practice about this. And she said that this area of deleting data, of having good data hygiene is of particular importance because a lot of companies really struggle with this. A lot of companies are sort of in the habit of once we collect it, we keep it forever. And that's a practice that they won't be able to continue it under the GDPR or they could be opening themselves up to lots of areas of liability down the road. It's also really important that companies sort of start looking at this right now if they haven't already because they do have just under two years to become compliant. Right now, I believe it's by May 2018, the GDPR goes into a And if companies aren't compliant, there are really big fines associated with this. A maximum penalty could be 4% of their global turnover or 20 million euro, whatever is higher. So a lot of information, but big consequences, unfortunately, if it's not complied with. So you've given some good advice for companies here. What happens if a data controller or processor is breached? They obviously have a lot of sensitive stuff on their hands. How did your sources say companies should respond in the event that this happens? So yeah, that's a good question, Holly, because that is a big area that the GDPR touches on and in the 200 plus page regulation, there's a lot of information about data breaches. But one of the main things is that it creates sort of this 72 hour requirement for controllers or processors to notify EU citizens if they've been breached. They'll have to communicate that they've been breached in clear and plain language and must describe what data was affected, likely consequences of the breach, and measures the controller or processor has taken to address it. Obviously, as you and I know, and most of our listeners, all of this information isn't always available with within 72 hours that a controller or processor becomes aware that they've been breached. So Evan said he thinks most companies will sort of create a template response to notify authorities and individuals if they've been breached. For instance, he said companies will probably use a holding letter, which doesn't give a great deal of information other than alerting people the breach happened and that it's being investigated and that more information will be available, you know, as they learn more about the breach. One benefit of this strategy is that it could make it so companies will have to plan out in advance how they're going to handle a breach and alert people so they're not making those decisions in real time when responding to a data breach. So it's encouraging companies to be proactive, if nothing else. Megan, thank you so much for explaining all of this, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for having me, Holly. The Summer Olympics are taking place this month in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And like any global event, there are security concerns that come along with the Games. Homeland Security Editor Lily Chapa tells us what threats are top of mind for security experts. Lily, hello. Thank you for stopping by the podcast. Hey, Holly. 
There's a lot of buzz surrounding the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. What are some of the characteristics of the city that are raising security concerns? According to experts, the biggest issue in Brazil will be the crime. Rio de Janeiro can switch from a lovely resort-style neighborhood to gang-run favelas in an instant. I think we'll hear a lot about tourists who get shaken down after making a wrong turn. People attending the Games will have to travel to four different sites to see the Olympic events, and experts note that public transportation options are sparse meaning it will be easy to snare those traveling from one site to another. And there are multiple groups to worry about. Gangs that often clash with each other or law enforcement, and even the military who may want to protest their poor working conditions by staging strikes and hindering movement throughout the city. So it sounds like there's no shortage of issues surrounding these Olympics when it comes to security. There will be about 85,000 security personnel on hand. But why did your sources say that these strikes might happen among security workers? What makes that a possibility and what would be the consequences of such an event? Well, Brazil is pulling security personnel from all over the country to keep the streets safe during the event. But unfortunately, many of these officers are not getting the pay they were promised and are probably going to be working long hours in harsh conditions. A strike would be a very effective way to get their grievances addressed. And in fact, that tactic was successful during the World Cup, so it's not unprecedented. If the civil police go on strike, this could hinder tourists from filing police reports or receiving administrative assistance. If the military police strike, that means nobody is manning the streets. An emergency national police force would be called upon in this situation, as well as the army. This could flare tensions among locals, as the patrols would probably be more militaristic in nature, with the feeling of military occupancy. One expert told me that if the military police strike, it will be nothing short of a disaster. You also write that infrastructure and the Zika virus are two other pestering issues for the Olympics in Brazil. How are those two things posing a problem? Well, by this point, we've all heard about Zika and everything that comes with it. And depending on who you ask, you'll either get told that it's not a prevalent threat or it will become the modern plague. Regardless, Zika is definitely a concern and experts recommend that couples who are pregnant or trying to conceive do not attend the games. As far as infrastructure goes, travel between the four sites in an area with such a high population is sure to be tricky. And it doesn't look like there's much of a variety of public transportation options. Also of concern is the more recently built structures. A bicycle path built as an Olympic legacy project collapsed shortly after it was built, killing two people. A lot of the new infrastructure that was built to support the games was constructed rapidly, and experts point out that many construction companies are corrupt and will cut corners to save money. And finally, your sources do address the possibility of a terror attack at the games, which is quite a worst-case scenario, even given all the other problems we have been discussing. How likely is such an event? Right now, experts say that a terrorist attack on the games is a low probability. Organizations such as ISIS just don't have the operational capabilities in Brazil that they do in Europe. There's not a network to radicalize or provide material to potential attackers. The only terrorist group with a presence in Brazil is Hezbollah, but they use that region for financing and money laundering and probably wouldn't want to risk that by planning an attack. Regardless, an integrated anti-terrorism center has been established in Rio, which will combine local to international leaders, Olympics officials, and intelligence analysts to deter any type of attack. Although Zika and terrorist attacks have been prevalent over the last few months, it looks like crime will still be the biggest threat to those attending the Olympics. Well, thank you so much, Lily, for telling us more about the threat profile at the Olympic Games in Brazil, and we're hoping everyone stays safe. Thank you so much. Thanks, Holly.
Finally, a new study reveals that companies with just two or 400,000 employees are all vulnerable to trade secret theft. The lead author of that study, Brian Johnson, talks to us about what he and his co-authors learned throughout their research and shares best practices on how to avoid becoming a victim of trade secret theft. We began our conversation by discussing the background and the goals of the study. Well, the goal of our study initially was exploratory in nature. We knew that trade secret theft was a problem, but the big question was, what is the nature and extent of the problem in the context of prosecutions? So that really drove our our research was just the curiosity related to it. And from there, we used one particular law, the Economic Espionage Act of 1996, to examine trade secret theft in the United States. And we examined the period 1996 2014 and analyzed those cases where the federal government prevailed or was successful in prosecuting offenders. You know, anecdotally, you hear stories about some companies being victimized through the theft of their trade secrets. And it's not only trade secret theft, it's the intellectual property that we need to be concerned about. And what I mean there is, is companies also have to be concerned about patents. But the problem is with patents is they're public. Anyone that is interested can just go to the U.S. Patent Office and basically get a hold of the patent. With trade secrets, meanwhile, the company or organization makes concerted efforts to keep it a secret. And as such, we were curious, you know, what was the nature and extent of of the theft of, of those particular trade secrets over patents. So we only looked at one type of intellectual property. And then from there, we took a look at one type of trade secret theft. And the type of trade secret theft we we took a look at was not economic espionage per se, which is committed by rival countries, but we took a look at trade secret theft committed by individuals and perhaps a group of individuals. Brian, are there any particular verticals that are especially vulnerable to trade secret theft or any type of information that is the most sought after? It was interesting. Originally, when we looked at the research, based upon other anecdotal stories that you read in other magazines or journals, it always appeared that it was the foreign threat that was the most dangerous for organizations. So that was one of the big questions we looked at is, who is the offender when it comes to trade secret thefts in the context of their nationality? And what we found there was, it's, there is a foreign threat. Okay, we always have to keep that in mind. But what's really interesting is most of the offenders of trade secret theft were U.S.-born citizens or naturalized uh, individuals. They were not the foreign threat per se. So what I would encourage organizations to think about when they're looking at their trade secret security-related programs and policies is let's look at this in a broad perspective and let's consider the fact that anyone can basically steal trade secrets. It doesn't depend upon their nationality. Now, when it comes to actual trade secret theft, one of the big problems that we have in modern-day society is that everything is digital. And what we found there was, in a lot of cases, it was digital media being stolen out of organizations. And what's interesting in that context is I think at times organizations and security directors will think, well, we need to have a lot of information technology-related security. But the means of theft were simple. It was literally individuals copying information onto flash drives, burning them onto DVDs, and literally walking out the front door of the organization's trade secrets. That was the most common way to steal trade secrets. And if it wasn't digital, again, it was literally carrying objects or paper right out the front door. I can recall one case where federal agents uh, got a search warrant, and while searching this person's house, they found over 30,000 hard copy documents. 
that this individual had carried out of the organization. This was a Fortune 100 organization, very well known. So it can happen to anybody, and keep in mind that it can be a very simple means of theft to accomplish a great deal of damage to an organization. But what really surprised us was that these were trusted individuals within the company. And what I mean by trusted people is they're software engineers. Some of these were vice presidents of the company. Individuals where, at first glance, you'd say, well, there's no way that these individuals would commit trade secret theft. They're so heavily staked that they would never do such a thing. So again, I would caution everybody, anybody can commit trade theft. And from our analysis, it could be a waiter at a cafeteria in a large organization, all the way up to a president or vice president of a company. So again, the profile of a trade secret offender, there really isn't one. Anyone can be an offender. So that means that we need to have a comprehensive security program. And not only that, we need to have a security culture within our organization. It's fascinating, as we were reading your story, to learn that some companies or employees of rival companies will attempt to sell trade secret data to those competitors. I think you mentioned that a MasterCard employee wanted to sell some information to Visa. He was stopped in an FBI sting. Tell us a little bit more about that. Is that a common practice? In some of the case studies that we looked at, or I should say the case filings, what was really nice to see is that some companies had trained their employees to be security conscious, meaning that in a lot of cases, employees themselves notified corporate security or some official within the company who then notified the FBI, and then the FBI, of course, does the investigation. So that tells us that, you know, in some cases, there's a security awareness culture where employees realize the value of information, and they're taught to protect it, and they're taught to recognize when information is somehow being compromised. And what's interesting is, even in some cases, where the offender approached a rival company, the rival company is then notified the victim company that their trade secrets are being compromised and trying to be sold on the open market. And that's nice to see, too, where companies work together and they recognize that, you know, if one company is being the victim of trade secret theft, they could also be the victim of trade secret theft, and collectively they need to work together to, uh, to deter this, uh, this serious problem. In that particular case, uh, the, the MasterCard case, what this case highlights is that, again, at times trade secret theft is not a complicated scheme. In this particular case, we had an employee who's in a trusted position, you could argue. I would argue that all employees are in a trusted position. They're within the organization. They have access to a lot of different types of information. And even beyond trade secret theft, we always have to think about other forms of internal theft. But in this particular case, we had perhaps, and, and I'm generalizing here, and it's dangerous to generalize, but you had a company cafeteria where executives would meet, and it appeared that they had left confidential information out in the open. And this particular threat recognized the inherent value of that information, stole it, and then went to the rival company to try to sell it. Again, what's interesting here is that the rival company recognized their ethical obligation, of course, not purchase it, but then to notify MasterCard that some of their trade secrets were compromised and they needed to address it. I guess in closing, Holly, you know, the, the one takeaway message, uh, regardless of all of the individual cases that we looked at, is trade secret theft is a problem in the United States. You know, the review of the cases just strongly suggests that trade secret theft is a serious problem for companies in the United States. But the one concern that we have is that these are cases known to the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice. 
And I'm always concerned about those cases that are never detected. And arguably, we have a dark figure of crime when it comes to that, that there has to be a lot of trade secret theft going on in organizations where, unfortunately, these organizations are totally oblivious that they've been victimized. And I would encourage all organizations, again, to reevaluate their security programs. Take a look at your personnel security. Ask yourself, how can we beef that up? And the personnel security has to be from cradle to grave. It has to be before you hire that person, and we have to have continuous reliability all the way through. Then take a look at your information security program. How can we beef up our information security program? It can be simple things by just denying access to some information. And what I mean by that is the physical information as well as cyber information. Then, of course, you have to have a strong physical security program, too. If we work on those three pillars, we can be confident that we've done a lot to prevent trade secret theft from occurring within our organization. Thanks so much for being here, Brian. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Security Management Highlights. We hope you are having a wonderful summer and look forward to bringing you more material throughout the month and year. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Bye-bye.